This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In today's episode, we introduce another unique format for business breakdowns. We will be diving into the iconic global motorsport brand, Formula One. To break down F1, I'll be joined by F1 CEO, Stefano Domenicali, and Armand Gokul-Klein, a partner and investor at Ruane, Caniff, and Goldfarb. To start the conversation, Armand and I frame the business of F1 with a high-level overview of how the league operates and generates revenue. Then Armand joins me to speak to Stefano, who was appointed CEO of F1 in late 2020 after the league and teams agreed to their latest Concord Agreement, which governs stakeholders across the ecosystem. We touch on Stefano's own story growing up with Formula One, how the team, driver, and ownership worlds align, and what gets him most excited for the brand moving forward. Armand and I then wrap up by diving into the white space opportunities for F1 and discussing key lessons for builders and investors. The origin story of Bernie Ecclestone founding and operating F1 is fascinating, and I admire how Liberty has been able to push the brand further into the spotlight. You can see a clear focus on building and aligning ecosystem across the fans, teams, and league officials. This was an incredibly fun episode where you'll hear both an inside and outside view. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of F1. So Armand, a great place to begin our discussion on Formula One, the business, is with revenue. And actually, even before revenue, it's probably good to start with the viewership and sort of the fan base because so much of the revenue comes from those big super fans that Formula One has accumulated over the years. Let's begin there. How many people watch Formula One? Give us a sense for like a race day. Like how many people are involved? How big is this thing? There are 400 million or so unique fans globally. And just to give you a comparison point there, the NFL might have more like 100 million and even the Premier League is probably closer to 300 million. And a Premier League is truly a global sport in some ways, even though the avid fans are more regional and local. And so there's just a huge fan base here and the fans are really, almost all of them tend to be avid because it's such a technical sport. Now the Drive to Survive series on Netflix has changed that a little bit with a a little bit more of the casual fan coming in, which is why there's probably opportunity to grow that 400 million number even further. But it is one of the largest, if not the largest league in the world by fan base, depending on kind of what metric you use. If you go back across Formula One's history, To what do you most attribute that fact? I mean, that's a big statement that even relative to the Premier League, which is very global in nature, it's even bigger. What do you attribute that massive size to over the years? I think it's one of the only truly global sports out there. So the Premier League has got global reach, but it's really a regional local sport. Teams are all local. And even if you go to someone that's outside the UK and say to them, hey, do you follow the Premier League? They almost certainly will say, here's my local soccer team that I follow. But I, hey, in Premier League, which is one of the preeminent leagues out there, I also follow them and here's my team in the Premier League. But it's really a secondary relationship. With Formula One, Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport. 
it's so far larger than any other motorsport out there. And it's truly global, you know, 21, 22, 23 races in 2021, 22 countries. So you're getting local fan engagement across the world and you're getting people who are finding relationships with different parts of the sport. So the drivers are from different countries. The teams are owned by different members of different countries. So it's got truly global reach in a way that few sports do. So obviously this massive group of 400 million engaged fans is the primary driver of three key revenue buckets for Formula One. Can you first list what each of those three are and sort of the percentage of total revenue that they represent? And then I'd love to spend some time double clicking on each of them to understand exactly how it works. Absolutely. There are three main primary drivers of revenue. The first is race or promoter fees. Those are essentially the fees that a local partner pays Formula One to host a race. Formula One isn't actually putting on the race itself. It charges a fee to a local partner who then hosts the race, sets up the racetrack, sets up all the entertainment around the race. And that's just under a third of revenues today. The second bucket is broadcast revenues, obviously just transmission of the broadcast rights of the sport across the world to different broadcast partners. That's just a touch over a third of revenues. And then finally, there's sponsorship and advertising. Today, that's about 15% of revenues, though I would say that's probably where there's the most opportunity for growth versus the other two. There's a final bucket, let's call it, which is other. That's about 15% of revenues as well. The primary driver there is paddock club revenue. So paddock club is essentially the VIP section at a race. And the league, Formula One, has the rights to sell tickets to that and to host the VIP section in a handful of races. And so that's kind of the biggest driver. There are other drivers. Formula One's involved with Formula Two and Formula Three racing, kind of the minor leagues, if you will, and generate some revenue from there. There's some revenue tied to transporting the team's cars around. There's a fleet of 747s that basically help the circus go from one spot to the other uh, around the world. But those are all lower margin if you will, than the primary three. So even though it might be 15% in that final bucket of revenue, it's a smaller portion of profits. And so I would really think of the big three that we just talked about as the primary drivers of the business. So I think the total pie is 2 billion or so of revenue generated by the sport and nice, simple understanding of how much is coming from each of those. I'd love to dive into the three primary ones and maybe we'll touch on the ancillary revenue streams and and some things that might happen in the future at the end. Let's start with the promotion fees. So this is all around the track. And I'd love to understand sort of the economics and the business of the track itself. Like who owns these track? Who builds them? Who is the promoter? How do they engage? Do they own the track? Does someone else, do they engage with the track owners? And just sort of like why they do it. So I'm assuming they pay a big fee to Formula One and then they earn a return on that spend. So just walk us through that portion of the business. The model is everything you said. (laughs) So sometimes it's the racetrack owner. Usually it'll be a local car or racing enthusiast club that owns a racetrack and is the promoter. Other times the promoter will be the government. Sometimes the promoter will be a local business person who decides to rent the track and then put on effectively a show. Formula One is a global spectacle. I mean, you've seen the video that comes out of these races, Monaco obviously being the most famous one. It's a global VIP high-end spectacle. And so it's not necessarily just racing enthusiasts that are interested in it. If you want to think about the way that revenue works is, as you said, the promoter will usually agree to pay a fee to Formula One. That fee can be 
anywhere from near zero, which is what a Monaco is, given the historic importance and historic relationship that race uh, that city is not even a racetrack has had with the sport. Typically, you'll have a group of what they call core races in Western Europe that might pay more like a 10 to 20 million fee, depending on the race. And again, these are individually negotiated. They are not publicized. So they're not readily available. Nobody likes to talk about them. And then finally, you have flyaway races. These are races in kind of the emerging world where usually the promoter or the government has an interest in trying to use the F1 name to bring tourism or to bring some of that VIP pizzazz, if you will, to the local market where you'll see 30 million plus race fees. And there's been a big debate about whether or not fees that are paid are sustainable. In other words, do the promoters get to generate a return on that? It's very expensive to put on a race like this. The FIA requirements for a Formula One racetrack are very high. You can imagine if you have a car going at the speeds these things are going at, potholes are not okay. And so things just have to be at exacting standards. That said, I think there is good evidence that it's funny, the relationship to the profitability of a race versus the fee to a race is not uh, direct. So some of the more profitable races also happen to be the highest fee races. It's really increasingly become evident that it's how well someone does at monetizing the race itself. Good job do you do creating demand for the, for the sport? How much of a show do you put on? Do you have concerts, tier one musical acts? Do you bring in different famous people to kind of try to draw more attention into it? Do you start tiering your offering so that there's something even beyond the paddock club, the IP club that you can charge even more for? And the best promoters are very good at doing that and can pay high fees and yet also generate a profit. And some of the promoters have a harder time doing it. I'm assuming then that the source of revenue for them are the obvious ones, ticket sales, all the parties, extra events, probably gear and stuff like this, just sort of the big party. You got it. So their cost is everything and anything to put on the race. Formula One has a few costs it bears, uh, mainly around creating the broadcast, which then it resells to its broadcast sponsors. But in terms of actually putting on the race, all of the costs associated with that are with the promoter. And then the primary revenue is ticketing, as you said. Sometimes it doesn't include VIP because this league has kept it. And in some agreements, it does. And then, like you said, Austin does a very good job. For example, they'll have a usually a headline musical act associated with it. If you buy a higher tier ticket, you can get access to that act. And so they can create some monetization that way. This is a fascinating part because I always think about supply and demand, right? You said 23 races or so, 24 races. With 400 million fans, it kind of seems to me like the market would bear (laughs) as many races and different locations as Formula One was willing to dole out. How do you think about like expansion of the number of races per year, the number of tracks? You could see someone building a track like they build a stadium. Is this one dimension along which the business gets bigger? That's a great question. And one, the league struggles with itself. It's not as linear as I think we as investors might like to think of it as because there is just a huge logistics lift to move these teams from country to country. They show up usually on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, practices on Friday, qualifying is on Saturday, the race is on Sunday. Then you pack up an entire racetrack worth of people and equipment, and you got to ship it off to the other part of the world. This isn't like a local race where the infrastructure is permanent and you're just moving some people around from uh, one track to the other, like it might be with a NASCAR or with Indy here in the US. I do think there is opportunity to grow the race count. Management has talked about that. When Liberty took over the series, it was doing more like 19 races. So we're already up to 23 this year, hopefully how COVID affects that. We were at 21 in 2019. 
It's been publicized that the current agreements allow for races up to 25, but it's not so easy because the teams, it's just an enormous amount of pressure on these teams that are traveling around the world and have hundreds, if not over a thousand people that they have to move around and then all the equipment that comes with it. And it's a high cost for the teams too, to move people and teams around. Now they get more revenue because they have a revenue share with the league. But I suspect if you talk to most teams, they would tell you, you know, they're starting to approach those limits where they think it's viable. The other thing to point out, and I think Liberty talks about this openly and and smartly is you don't want to oversaturate the market. You don't want to have too many races where this starts to lose some of its specialness uh, as a good brand manager and kind of like an Aramez, which limits the high-end bags it puts out. And we've seen sport start to maybe overdo the number of races and content they released. You know, NASCAR has really increased over the last decade, the number of races it offers and, and arguably has hurt some of the ability to monetize that brand. And so Formula One is very cognizant of that as well. So about a third of the revenues come from the event itself, the promoter fees paid back to F1, the parent. The second big bucket, which is the largest, is broadcast. Talk us through how this works. I mean, I'm sure this is like a window into the changing world. This is a big theme in over-the-top streaming providers versus these intermediated deals with broadcasting partners. How has this worked historically for F1? How does the deal work that they strike? How many deals do they strike to earn their revenue? The way it was monetized under previous ownership when Bernie was running the show, he really had a handful. I think it was four or five key contracts with key Western European broadcasters, which drove the great majority of the value. I mean, the history of F1 is Western Europe. And so he just went out and said, okay, I'm just going to monetize my avid core fan base and focus on just that. These typically were multi-year contracts. They could be anywhere from uh, three years to five plus. They had natural escalators built into them, and they were what you would expect a sport contract, broadcast contract to be. Every five years or so, you you know sit down at the table again with have a bid in each individual country to say, okay, who wants to carry the French signal? Who wants to carry the UK signal? And historically, this was one where you had a mix of pay TV versus free TV. And the idea was free TV helps you, it helps to ensure you have a healthy fan base and engagement with new fans. Pay TV helps you monetize it better and, and generate higher fees. Right before Liberty came on the scene, there was a big shift towards pay TV. By the time Liberty came on in 2017, it was really five contracts, mostly over pay TV, that were driving the great majority of that broadcast revenue. This is probably the area where Liberty has done the most in a short amount of time, where the dollars necessarily haven't changed, but what's going on behind the scenes has changed quite a bit. They've talked about how they're fine with pay TV, but they want to make sure there's access to live TV to keep that fan base engaged. So they've done a lot of work there. And then obviously OTT became a reality very quickly under their ownership and under previous ownership, it wasn't something that was really tackled. And so they not only offered their own OTT product called F1 TV Pro, which is focused on that real avid knowledgeable fan and giving them access in most markets to uh, races and to more content around the races. But they also started to cut deals with broadcasters to partner with an OTT offering in various countries because of the hodgepodge of contracts that have been cut. And because these are multi-year, you don't get to just reset them quickly. There's a lot of work that's being done at F1 to try to ensure that the value of that OTT right is monetized, be that in partnership with the local broadcaster or just on its own. What starts to get exciting about broadcast as you look forward, obviously, is do we start to see competition from the streaming providers? 
the value of content for sports and live content in particular is really down to what's the demand and the competition for that, right? And as we've seen the streaming companies obviously achieve significant scale, the question has been, are they going to dabble in live sports rights, which is kind of one of the few bastions left for linear. I think it was probably a telling moment when uh, Amazon finally kind of fired the first salvo and made a bid for some NFL rights. What gets very exciting to think about is what happens if you have this global content, live content here that's unique like F1 is, and you start to see in countries like, especially in Western Europe, like the UK, where F1 is a truly important sport content to own, when you have the linear players fighting with the streaming companies, where you know you could argue this is that last wall of defense in some ways for the linear companies, and, and I think the streaming companies probably know it. This may be kind of a dumb question, but just to make sure I understand it from F one's perspective, I would assume this is a very simple business, which is you already mentioned they bear the cost to shoot the race itself, to create the content that then goes to these providers or these partners. But I'm assuming beyond that, that's basically it. They're handing over a basically digital content that they produce and the broadcaster can then do whatever they want with it. And that F1's revenue is simply the contract that they agree to upfront in these fixed contracts. Yeah, that's right. At a high level, I think because there were so many different types and forms of that contract sign, there are certain countries where, for example, the league owns the OTT rights, so the broadcaster can only offer it on a linear offering. There are other countries where you have a different fee structure, like in the UK, you have a very high fee compared to other countries at F1, though not necessarily the other sports where they did include the OTT right within that, compared to the US where ESPN really just has the linear right and F1 TV Pro has the OTT right. So there's some nuances there. But to your point, this is really a situation where you have a pretty fixed cost to create the content and you're retransmitting it to your broadcast partners who are just paying you a fee and then either creating channels around it. So in the UK, there is an F1 only channel in Sky Sports that you have to subscribe to because they create so much content around it that they can then monetize themselves on top of the fee versus other countries where you'll just see a simple retransmission. So the third bucket now is sponsorships. And this one is really interesting to me because it just seems like handled well, this is the ultimate in lending out the power of the F1 brand to sponsor partners, which is a delicate thing, right? You want great partners, but you also want great rates. And sometimes those two things might not line up. How does this manifest? Like what are sponsors paying for? How does it look today? How do you think it might look in the future? This is probably the area where there should be the most excitement because there's the most white space. It's the least developed. In the old days, it was simply a menu card. And hey, if you want a placard on the side of the racetrack at all 19, 2021 races, you pay X fee. If you want it just for your local race, you pay Y fee. And it was just a very simple way of monetizing that right. And as a result, it's not surprising that there was no soft drink partner for the sport no true tech partner for years for the sport. What starts to get a little bit fun now is Liberty has started to look at this opportunity and say, gosh, if you just a little more professionally slice and dice the pie so that you start to recruit regional and local partners and say, hey, it's not just about putting your name on the racetrack in a placard. It's about lending our brand to you and allowing you to use it in a way to help your brand build your brand. Is that something that we can do that can allow us to monetize this right better? 
And that's kind of why I would say together with the white space, plus the fact that there's this opportunity to think about monetization in a more nuanced way, you start to get excited about the opportunities. Again, it's a smaller revenue driver for the sport overall. And if you look at the sponsorship and advertising revenue for F1 as a league, you know, it's a fraction of what it is for many other leagues, simply because of the fact, and and you could argue it should be more because most leagues, you know, it's just about who can I partner with locally in the US, if you're at the NFL, there's not a lot of folks outside the US are going to be interested in that brand. Whereas again, as we talked about, there's 21 countries involved in the race calendar this year. So there's opportunity to monetize in a significantly better way. So Armand, I think this is a great place to pause and shift our conversation with Stefano. Through all of that framing of the business, it's clear that the F1 brand has an incredibly passionate following. And I think my favorite part about speaking with Stefano is that he embodies that passion. So Stefano, this is going to be so much fun. I think we'll start the conversation with your history around cars, F1. You've had so much interesting experience. Maybe you could begin by just describing your career. And I'm interested all the way back to the very start of your interest in this entire industry. Where did you get your early passion for the sport and for this area? Well, I was born in Imola. So for the ones that knows a little bit more about motorsport, Imola is a small city close to Bologna, north of Italy, when there is a big track with a lot of historical uh, experience, if I may say. And when I was born, you know, I started to be around the circuit really when I was a child. Everyone that's from that place, you were born in the middle of the oil burn and the noise, the sound, sorry, not the noise, the sound of, of cars and bikes. Therefore, I started with this passion. And when I was a student, I was going there, first of all, to watch races. And then when I was at high school, I was doing as a lot of people do, you know, giving the time to the organizer to help the organization to move on. So I was really literally in the paddock, parking the trucks and checking the passes. That's a very, very first experience. And that's where I met for the first time all the F1 teams and also Bernie Eccleston at that time, because it was already there. So you can imagine I was 16, 15, actually. After my university, I sent the CV to a lot of company around. And one of them, of course, was Ferrari. My first job was in Ferrari. It was responsible for fiscal affairs and internal business. And from 1991 up to 2014, so 23 years, I was in Ferrari. Different role, I had the privilege of having a growth inside the company, different roles and responsibility up to the head of motorsport and, and racing. On the other hand, I had the responsibility of a track in Italy that's called Mugello, that was and is still part of the property of Ferrari. And that's where really where my passion, I don't want to say my career, my passion on cars and motorsport started. So the roots are quite uh, strong, I would say, since the beginning of my life. I think one of the most important things to understand the business is to first understand the sport itself. And luckily you've had lots of experience at different parts of not only the business now running it, but but the sport, you ran the Ferrari team. Can you describe what it was like to run a team itself? Team is the essence of Formula One as it is the essence of every single business. The problem is that a lot of people do not understand the magnitude of the team in terms of numbers, in terms of competences, in terms of skills, in terms of knowledge. And this is very fascinating in Formula One. To be responsible for Ferrari F1 team, I would say, is something unique. You can imagine the level of pressure. You can imagine the level of attention that you have uh, every day, above all the pressure that you have every weekend when there is race. 
above all for the F1 community. And as you said very clearly, I would say Ferrari and F1 is a unique thing. You cannot believe to think of Ferrari without the F1. And I would say it's true also the opposite in a way. Uh, so to be Italian, to be head of Formula One a Ferrari team, you understand that either you are very well trained mentally, <laughs> I would say, otherwise you collapse, you crack under pressure. This is something that allows you to know a lot of dimensions that are related to the management of the people. You have a sport that is basically with two apical figures that are the drivers. With their unique skills, unique personalities, there are people that are working day and night to make sure that they are producing to you the best car in a technological environment that is growing and changing continuously. From that respect, Formula One is really the pinnacle of motorsport and represents the incredible bench for all the OEM and all the people involved in technology to develop the future. If you think, for example, if I may, for one sec, the actual power unit is the most efficient engine that is on the earth. With the so far normal fuel, we are already thinking to go into the future sustainable fuel. That gives you the dimension of what is the challenge there. But once again, the dynamic of managing a group of people that are quite competing within themselves, try to have the right balance, try to understand what are the opportunities for the right talent to grow inside this dimension. And not given for granted, if you're talking about a big team, as the, the one that the top of the qualification are, we are talking about a group of people that are in the region of 1,500. We are not talking about a team that you may expect, a baseball team of 10, 20 people. We're talking about a dimension that is really big. Of course, we are on the top of the scale. On the other hand, smaller team have a different numbers. What I can say and has been done by Chase in the last four years was thinking correctly in what is the need of Formula One to be sustainable in terms of business for the future. You can understand that in this moment, if you don't stabilize the structure of the cost to make sure that this is something that is solid enough to think into the future, that will be very difficult. Otherwise, it would be impossible to think in medium and longer term with our future. And that gives you the dimension of the challenge when you have to manage the business. You have to, to think that on one side, you have to consider that you have to be very successful on the sporting side. You have to win. But on the other side, you can win. You don't win only the year that you're running. You need to think how to progress the organization in order to be successful for the future because the regulation is changing, because the context is different, because the dynamic of the sport allow you not to sleep. You've said a lot about growing the fan base. And if I think about the business, obviously the fans are what make the business great and possible in the future. There's ways that you can make money directly from the fans. Obviously that more fans makes it more appealing to sponsors. Like the fan really does seem to be a key aspect here. And so I've got a couple questions there. Obviously you want as many fans as you can get, but you also want them to be as engaged on average as possible. Just taking myself as an example, I became much more familiar with F1 because of the Netflix series. I think a lot of people in the US did. What is that kind of partnership like? There's things like social media that just by letting the drivers be more active, I think in the past they were restricted. So obviously active drivers who are great personalities like Lewis Hamilton, brings in more fans, but you also spend money to acquire customers. So maybe walk us through those two decisions, the partnership with Netflix and the decision on opening up the drivers and social media and, and the impact that it's had to grow that fan base. I think it's very important to understand what is our vision for the future on that respect. 
By the way, when the next proposal was presented, not all the teams and neither the media with whom we have the actual contract were very happy. They were suspicious. They thought, well, they're going to have something that we don't have. They're going to do something that it's out of the court of Formula One. So why we're doing that? And I have to say, and I don't take any single merit for that because it was done for the vision of Chase and Sean Bratches before under you know the supervision of Greg Maffei. I have to say that was the right way to do. And now I have to say that who are the first that want to go more on this route are the teams, the drivers, and actually the media broadcasters that today see that as an added product that they can put on their show to give more information, more content, sorry, to the viewers. So that was a job that was incredible. And the effect on the audience or the awareness of non-avid fans is massive. So we don't stop. We are thinking what else. We can be traditional or preparing the same kind of things in the future. Of course, this year we are still working on in order to for Netflix to be involved in our day life. Now you don't, uh, I would say, it's part of what we are doing. It's great because people want to understand what is our life. They want to understand the curiosity behind the formality of our sport. And therefore, it's up to us to open up and to have maybe a certain limit that you need to have still the appetite, maybe not to have the full des- up to the dessert because the dessert has to come later. So this is something that we are working to that sort with a different approach because when you work with the sport media approach, you want to be very technical. You want to be focused, and this is for sure, we don't want to lose that, huh? because it's part of our DNA. Very technical information that you want to give, timing, precision, data analysis, uh, preparation of the race. The normal fans, the new fans, they, they really are interested in another information that we can provide to them. So that's why I see that very fascinated, because it's complementary. We are not taking away something to give to the others a different product. We are amplifying the content on what we want to offer to our customer. And this is exactly the same thing that what we said, let's move on. Social media, like it or not like it, is a way to be connected with the people. And we know very well that it's not only for Formula One. All our people today want to be the protagonist. And the more we feel them the protagonist of what we are doing, the more we will be speaking the same language the people are watching us and feel them part of that. And that's why we are, for example, we have the back race this week. I got another meeting with the drivers to make sure that they really are in the loop of what we are discussing. They are our heroes. They're not 2000, they're 20. So they are different characteristics, different age. They represent different country. They represent different path of growth out to Formula One. They represent the voice of people that see them like the heroes. So they need to understand that they are single voice. They need to be real. They need to be real. But they have a greater responsibility for that. And I have to say, in this period, the, the drivers is a great asset for us. Because everyone, in being different, of course, understand the role that they're playing in order to make Formula 1 more and more accessible. And this is happening. And this is great because we see immediately what is the trade-off of having more fans watching Formula 1, hoping, you know, as soon as the... COVID will be behind to see them live on the track. I always said to my people, we are working very hard and it's going extremely well with our e-gaming program. Everyone that is connected with our gaming, uh, with our licensing game in the program. But for us, that is not enough. Because if you let this platform grow without the transversal growth into the real business of us, that is racing on the track, 
being involved in the Formula One, we are missing the opportunity. So that's why we want to interrelate these kind of channels that are different in order to create events at the track and using Formula One. We are working on a project that is, I would say, will be incredible. It's very, very complex, but we don't have to promise anything that's part of our code of communication, but is a challenge that I can tell you is how we can connect the real racing with the iCloud racing done by all the people, the young people that are watching and, and wants to be the protagonists of racing. This is a dimension we are exploring. It's difficult, it's complex, but it's really another thing that we are working on. It will take time, but for sure it gives you another dimension on which form one will be for sure focused. It, it is already focused very, very, very heavily. Obviously, there's the sport and there's the business, and they have to work together. The latest Concord Agreement is really interesting in this regard. Can you describe what the Concord Agreements have been historically? Like, what is that concept and why this most recent one in 2021 was so different and how that impacts the business? It's, uh, first of all, Concord Agreement is the agreement that is enabling to put the governance procedure and the way how the teams, the FIA and us as a commercial holder, are basically working in terms of uh, revenue sharing. And the biggest difference is that, first of all, that's been signed last year, and it will be up to the end of 2025, will allow all the teams to know exactly the amount of money that they are receiving from the system. And it has been modulated in a way that we wanted to give the possibility to the smaller team to have more money to make sure they could be more sustainable for the future. The mechanism is quite complex and we cannot go into details of it, but allows the team to know for sure, even the small one or the last one, to have a certain guarantee on what is the level of revenue that he will receive at the end of the championship. And the other thing is that is very important to to connect to what I said at the beginning, allow the system to put caps on the technical expenses as a first step of managing the cost of the business in a very transparent way. It's not trivial, it's not simple. It is the first step in this direction, but immediately from the business perspective, activated the interest of the financial market. I can guarantee to you that all the teams received a lot of requests of interest of the financial world to see, is there any chance that you want to sell the team? Is there any chance that I can be part of the stakes of the team? This is because now it is much clearer what is the dimension of the investment of CapEx and operating costs that a, a team has to handle in the future. It has been, a, I would say, really a, an earthquake in Formula One. Never happened before. And that has been done thanks to the work of the last years. And I have to say that the team understood that. So it has been a massive step for a, the right way to manage the business for the future. Stefano, can I ask a quick question? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how this is a different sport in that not only are the drivers competing, but to your point, you have 1,500,000, a few hundred people, mostly engineers competing as well. And the spending really becomes an interesting dynamic because it's kind of like an R&D for a company. And the more you spend, the more incremental return you generate. There may be a diminishing return, but it's an incremental return. And so how that budget cap was really so crucial in ensuring a fairer sport. That has been really the key differentiator of enabling the sport into the future to have a bigger gap between the first and the last team. In a normal condition, if you don't manage the technicality of the sport, 
the teams that have more money, they can spend more in the development of the car. They can have more time and more resources dedicated to the development of the car. When I'm talking about the development of the car, for people that are not really so familiar to that, that means that every week you could work on a changing of a flap angle to maximize the aerodynamic effect of the car in respect of the previous race. You understand that if we were not able to put a, a sort of a limit on this development, you would have been in a situation where the biggest team would have been certain direction, the other, the smaller one with not the same amount of money possible to spend going in the other side of the scape. Now, next year, there will be a big change of regulation. After that, the regulation will be very stable. The biggest effect that this budget cap will have is not only on the money for the biggest thing, is in the organizational way that they have to work. Because when you are used to have everything available, you don't consider what you have to do. Now, the big teams with this system really need to change the culture. And to change the culture is something extremely difficult. Maybe you don't believe that, but I have been in a big team, so I know what does it mean. More to have less money to spend is for the in the mentality of the people, knowing that they cannot have unlimited number of tests they can do. It's just very limited to that. So it is a big change. And this will enable the sport in the very short term to have teams much closer in terms of performance with the fact that also smaller teams can have the chance to be more competitive in regard to the biggest one that, of course, have the knowledge of uh, who they are. That's the beauty of this system. And of course, everyone is looking for the future because uh, the change of regulation that we, the FIA will brought into the system next year is massive. And the teams are already this year, because of the procedures that I told you, working on the new cars because it's needed to understand exactly what we are talking about. I'd love to understand, going back to the sport itself a little bit, th three key levels, the car, the driver, and the team, what great means. You ran the Ferrari team, you won one championship, maybe multiple, but definitely one championship as the leader of that team. Maybe we'll start at the high level with the team. What does great mean? Like, What do great teams do better than the other teams to win championships? Well, of course, great team means that you have a lot of resources, a lot of competences, a lot of people. You develop the knowledge that it's a matter of experience. It's not by chance that you have seen other manufacturers in the past that came in and left the sport thinking that only because they were representing a big OEM or big brand and with no limit of investment, they thought they could be able to win the championship. It's not for that. It's a sport that is very complicated at a technical level. In a way, one of the limits of a Formula One on which we need to grow is the fact is auto-referential. If you look at the people that are in the technical side of it, they are always the same. They are creating that kind of things that are at the top level. It's difficult to get in. Now, with this new approach that we are pushing with, with all the teams to have new talent bringing into the sport, I think the next years, in the next three, five years, we're going to see a big change in that. When we're talking about great teams, we're talking about facility that are very, very important. You need to have, for example, for a team that is working on the chassis, a wind tunnel to develop your car. You have a group of research and developer engineers that are working not on the operation of the race itself, but in the preparation and development of the car for the future. On top of that, you have to work on the simulation. We have growth in the last, I would say, 10 years. The level of simulation in Formula 1 is at the top. The simulation using Formula 1 is even higher than the ones they're using to go to the space. 
It's the complexity of it is incredible, incredible. And it's so fascinating if you're interested in the, technical, in the on the technical side of it, that is really impressive, impressive. The level of confidence that you need to be at the top level for one is immense. On the aerodynamic side, on the dynamic side, on the engineering side, now on the hybrid side for the future. And these are things that are evolving step by step in the Formula One. What is really great for Formula One is that the speed of activation on what you need to develop is impressive. And that's the nature of the sport. When the green flag or the green light is on, you have to start. You cannot wait. So this need of being active on time gives you really a sort of alarm of a time on which you need to push for not uh, sleeping. It's an, a super incredible active job. You cannot say, okay, if I don't do that tonight, I will do it tomorrow. Impossible. The race is on Sunday, you know that, and they are not waiting for you. This sort of uh, push, it's a great challenge for everyone at all level. Mechanics, if you think of mechanics, today there is a pit stop. They do it, they change the tires in 1.9 seconds. Can you imagine? 1.9 seconds, you don't have even the time to arrive. By the way, the young drivers, normally they were used to the previous championship, to go there, wait, change the gear, the clutch, the gear, and so on. They arrive, they already have to arrive while they're stopping, getting ready to restart because it's so quickly. This because is because it's related to the level of technology of the systems. For example, on the guns, special technology also for the guns. There is a special technology to release the car without waiting for the human reaction time of each of the people involved. There is a system, I remember when I was both there, that we prepared the guys around the car with a specific training because we had a simulation depending on the position of each guy around the car to maximize the training, the fitness of the muscle, depending what you were doing. Put the ties, taking away the ties, putting the gun, taking up the jack and so on. This wow. is the level of, of sophistication that is Formula One. This is Formula One. This is, sorry if I may be too emotional on that, but this is really great. No other sport has this kind of approach. I love this idea of the team, people training their muscles for a certain kind of tire they're taking off. What a crazy optimization. Same question for drivers. What makes a great driver? There are some incredible ones active today that a lot of people will know their names, but what makes one driver stand out versus another through time? Well, at this level of sportman, I would say, generally speaking, either you reach that level with the talent or you reach with the preparation. But the biggest, biggest differentiator is how you react to the pressure, how you read the race, how you prepare yourself and how you prepare the car. I give you one example because I think it's interesting to understand what we are talking about. And once again, the level of sophistication. Formula One is by far the quickest sport. And if you think that the drivers have to be running, I'm sorry if I use the kilometer instead of miles, but let's say they run more than 300 kilometers per hour on the straight. And while they are on the straight, they need to think how they be as quick as possible in braking, entering the corner, exiting the corner and preparing for the other race. And this is something that for me is super incredible. They have a sort of slow motion while they are running so fast to defragment frame by frame the performance that they had to have together with the car, meter by meter. And if you look at the steering wheel of a car, you see how many switches they are. 
if you think to that they are able to change the switch, not because they like to change the switch, because they know that while they are getting close to the breaking point, they are preparing the car for a different phase of, as I said, of a corner to maximize the performance. That gives you the way that they have to be, understanding every single second. And for me, when I was in the other role and we talking with the drivers, they have the capacity or the capability, sorry, really to be slow in analyzing, to be the quickest to react. The anamnesis that they do, they do at 300 miles per hour, but with a mind that you can do a slow motion because they need to understand how they can be better of the other, how they can maximize their performance. And But it's not only for them. They need to understand how to work with the, the engineers. They need to have the right relationship. It's a family. It's a team that is fully dedicated day and night there together. So also the dynamic of the relationships are crucial. There are sports where... As I said, there are only 20 in the world. There is a big dispute that these are the best, as always. In sport, the watched, in our case, is easy. You can say, okay, every driver with a great car can do it. But the great driver are showing the difference at the right moment. And this is it. And this is really something that, once again, in the dimension of the sportman, is fascinating. They are incredibly fit. They have to manage G-forces. Positive, of course, not like the plane, also negative, but G-forces, lateral forces uh, that are impressive. You need to be at the track to understand the level of speed, the level of downforce, the level of emotion that you have to see. Because on TV, sometimes you have the filter of uh, not giving the real physical requirement of a driver. And one thing, the technology, we are talking with our people on TV, we need to have maybe less stable image but we need to give the perception, not only of the speed, of the difficulty of being a Formula One driver. Because when you go to the track, you have the wow effect. Everyone says, wow, that's impressive. So that's why we want to go back to the track. We want to have people at the track to enjoy and to see that we are talking about people that are unique, are unique. And this is, for me, very, very important to say. How do you think about the sport from the perspective of your OEM partners in a world that's becoming more focused on sustainability, electrification. You've talked about uh, how you have the most efficient internal combustion engine, hybrid engine already on the cars. You're talking about biofuels for the future, but can you just talk a little bit about how F1 remains at the forefront? I think that the Formula One will remain even further in the front of that because we have already decided the future of our power will be hybrid. Hybrid is also a way for the OEM to be more credible with their offer in terms of technological possibility for the future. Because the world will not be full electric in the short term. That's my personal opinion. Even the doubt that there will be the right choices for the future in terms of full sustainability from zero to the scratch. So I think that the being hybrid, we can offer the platform to the OEM to be, and with a sustainable fuel, as you were saying correctly, sustainable fuel, to give the possibility to the actual world of cars that is available around the world to be present in a sort of a continuous way, being different in the future, being sustainable, as you said, and for one has been always. And on that, we need to improve our line of communication, if I may say, the very, very efficient. And this is something that we will develop with OEM in the future. That's why we are discussing with new OEM in the future, if they want to join Formula One in the future, because at the end of the day, we are credible with facts. Formula One has been always the bench of innovation for the automotive sport and manufacturing, automotive car manufacturing. 
always in terms of materials, in terms of method methodology, in terms of new components, in terms of new solutions. And we don't have to forget, we, for one, was the first to introduce the hybrid engine. It was the first. In 2014, when there was the big changes on that, for one was the first. And I think that on that respect, the next step we're going to do is really another one that will enable for one to be always at the front. Sustainable fuel is for sure there as a package. More electrification will be part of the project, but we don't have to forget that the billions of cars that are around the world are using the internal combustion engine. So it's still part of the OEM packages. And therefore, by combining these two elements, three elements together, I see hybridization and sustainable fuel. I think that also in terms of the technical development and advanced technology, for one, would represent the pinnacle, with no doubt. As you think about the business itself, and maybe let's think five years forward or seven years forward, what do you think will be the most different about the F1 business then versus now? I would say the future is positive. I see the intensity, once again, of the emotion that we are bringing to the fans and the viewers that we are having this year are growing. We have an incredible opportunity to develop new markets. Next year, we're going to be in Miami in the United States. United States of America represents for us one big challenge that we need to make sure we take in the right way. I see a lot of enthusiasm already with the announcers in Miami. The tickets are almost finished. The level of attention is there. Therefore, it's our duty to make sure that we, I don't know if it's right to say that, hammering down this intense moment in the weeks forward, because we need to give to our American fans the explanation of who we are. We need to provide to them a different platform because, of course, we do respect the incredible sport platform that uh, is there in the U.S., but we do believe that we can be unique. We need to be humble in understanding the reason why professional sport in the U.S., like football, like basketball, like baseball, are very strong. But we have a story to tell. We are credible, and above all, we can create passion and emotion in a way that in motorsport, of course, we have other forms in the U.S. that are very important. While we do believe we could have a stronger voice. That's why we want to show who we are. And with a credible voice, we can be really strong in the U.S. So that's really a target that we have, very clear. But we want to make sure that uh, our American fans, in the next couple of years, will understand what is Formula One. And this is something that we don't sleep because we know that there's a, a challenge, but we want to succeed that. In terms of technology, I think is a natural evolution of the car itself. We are moving versus hybridization with regard to the power unit. We want to develop cars that will be, in a way, more difficult to drive because we want to have people that are really superheroes on the technical side. What will be different is the level of possible viewing the sport, living the sport. As we said, we want to embrace the fact that People that can have the opportunity can really be live at the track itself because we want to offer a unique experience bigger than Formula One. So it's something that you have to bring your family, your friends to enjoy a unique event that you can have a really great show. In terms of possibility to see, I think that more and more we go ahead, we can see Formula One everywhere at every single moment, in the moment that you want. And this is something that I think is a natural development of all the sport, of all the things that you love to do. People in this moment are really multitask and multifunctional. And once again, this multitask approach is related to one, the thing that I told you before. We want to make sure that our people loving Formula One can be interactive 
on the sport itself, knowing that in any case, the heroes of Formula One will be the heroes on which you want to maybe fight with or see you as an aspirational role. This is really what I see Formula One in the future. But I see clearly that it will be the protagonist of a sporting platform, not even a doubt. Do you have a favorite memory from your entire history in Formula One, some moment that stands out in your mind? I get some moment, yes, that are quite personal on the positive side, but also on the negative side. Because in the sport, it's easy when you win. It's more difficult when you lose the champions in the last corner, or you have already won. I remember very clearly, and it's still burning in a way. 2008, when with Ferrari, we won the constructor title, and Felipe Massa was winning the driver championship. He took the checker flag being the world champion. And after 23 seconds, if they recall wrongly, Lewis Hamilton was able to overtake one driver was in front. And by doing that overtake, he was the world champion. These kind of emotions are quite intense, but that's the beauty of the sport. Well, Stefano, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Great to meet you. And thank you again for your time. I'm available every time, 24 hours. Thanks, Stefano. Ciao. Bye-bye. So, Armand, I absolutely loved hearing how Stefano was literally born hearing the sound of racing in Italy. His experience with the league feels like a natural fit as the company transitions forward. If we can shift back to where you started, you've done a nice job laying out the simple formula of the business. You sort of have fans at the top, and then you sort of have three ways of monetizing their interest and their attention. As you think about it from an investing standpoint, if that's just the simple formula of the business... You've already kind of answered the question on why not more races would equal more revenue, but there's problems with that. How do you think about the places you've mentioned sponsorship now beyond sponsorship where there's the most white space? If we look back in five years or let's say 10 years even, and this business has gone from two to 10 billion of revenue, like what do you think the most likely drivers of that might be? Just to step back and stay at the macro level for a second, we talked about $2 billion of revenue more or less and 400 million fans. So if you want to think about it, that's about $5 of monetization per unique fan. The NFL, we talked about $16 billion with about 100 million fans. So that's over $150 per unique fan. The Premier League does $6 billion in revenues with $300 million. That's $20 per unique fan. So without getting into the specifics for a second, if you just step back and say, what's the opportunity to monetize? It's there. It's just, it's yeah. there, right? <laughs> so now the question is, how do you go execute that? And they might be richer. Arguably that fan is wealthier on average. You're exactly right. The fan is on average wealthier. They're on average more engaged because of the amount of data and complexity to this sport that you can get into. There's one terabyte of data that comes off a car per race. And the avid fans can tell you what the key data points are. And it's dozens and dozens and dozens of things that they're following in a given race beyond just race strategy and who's in first place. And it's also a chess match. It's not just one race. It's, you know, a season. And how do you ensure that there's a constructor's championship and a driver's championship? It's just three-dimensional chess constantly. There's real opportunity, to your point, to get these engaged, you know, on average wealthier fans to monetize them. So that's kind of at the high level, if you will, the opportunity that lays ahead. And I'm not saying this is going to go to the NFL or necessarily even the Premier League. The Premier League and NFL have more content that they push out to that smaller fan base, though even if you adjust it for cumulative TV audience engagement, corrects for that, the NFL is still like 4x the monetization and uh, the Premier League is still you know, well over what Formula One's at. So the point being, at a high level, there's opportunity, real opportunity to monetize here. On the race fees, as you pointed out, there isn't a lot of opportunity to have more races. I will say 
I suspect there is an opportunity to improve uh, race fees. And the reason I say that is the best promoters sometimes pay the highest fees and also make the highest profits. And that's just because they are very good at monetizing. And Formula One has built a team within Formula One management, the league, which is actually trying to actively go out and work with promoters to increase their revenue, which obviously indirectly would then allow them to increase their race fees over time. I would suspect that that is a growing line. Not Is it going to double or triple? No, that's not the type of growth we're talking about, but there's opportunity for growth there, certainly. We touched on advertising, as you said, the advertising line, there's just a lot of white space. The idea that it could double or more is certainly viable and that it's a pretty easy equation to work out, which is there's just a lot of white space in terms of partnerships. And there's just a lot of white space in terms of global versus regional versus local that you can sign. So there's a real easy opportunity to see there to do some work. Broadcast, I'm somewhat excited about because of this idea that you could just see a step function change in their ability to uh, monetize their broadcast rights if you start to see competition from the streaming companies step in. Again, if you're a streaming platform and a global streaming platform at that, like a Netflix or even a Disney, ESPN, there's not a lot of sports content out there that's global. Premier League certainly qualifies, but so does Formula One and with the fan base that they're talking about here. And so I think there's real opportunity for growth in broadcast over time when we start to, if we start to see these streaming companies essentially try to get engaged in live content. But then stepping back from that, you have to open up your mind a little bit and just come back to this idea that what's the value of this ecosystem? If we believe that we're going to have a more valuable ecosystem as competition improves, as sustainability improves, as global reach improves, as the fan base numbers improve. The question then is, what else can you do to monetize that base? I still think Formula One, the brand is enormously valuable, even at the league level, which is unusual. Usually most of the value sits with the teams. And to some extent it does here too, though the teams tend to be you know, either OEM partners or soft drink partners or what have you. But the league really carries a lot of the cachet, not the individual teams. And that's, again, a little bit unusual. And so what can you do with that league brand to partner with OEMs, to partner with science and technology schools, which F1 has started to do, to partner with science and technology companies to say, we are a showcase. DHL, which is one of their primary partners, uses Formula One as a showcase to say, this is one of the most complex logistical questions that is out there in the world, and we solve it. And they actually use it as a selling point. So using that brand, that cachet, the complexity, the data, the technical, the science, and how do you monetize that in ways beyond just traditional models of, hey, let's do some sponsorship and advertising. Hey, let's you know rebroadcast. Hey, pay us a fee to put on a race. So you've laid out nicely snapshot of, okay, there's a little bit more than 2 billion of revenue. Here are kind of the three major buckets that it comes from. And they're fairly straightforward and traditional. And a lot of this seems like a licensing business, right? Like it's this beautiful core asset and sport that people love, and there's ways to make money from people loving the sport. Let's talk about the teams first. So the teams again here is very unique in that it's not just a contained thing like the New York Giants might be. It is intimately related, let's take Ferrari for an example, with another separate business where the way that Ferrari spends and concentrates effort in Formula One is inextricable from its business selling cars. So talk us through the teams. What's the story here? How do you get a team? And why is this such a unique dynamic for both the owners of those teams and the OEMs with which they're associated? There are 10 teams and have been for a while. I kind of think of them in three buckets. You have the leaders of the pack, usually the top three, and that would be Ferrari, Mercedes, and Red Bull. 
You have the mid-tier teams. You can think of that as uh, McLaren and Renault in particular, and then increasingly Aston Martin is trying to get themselves in that bucket. And then you have the secondary teams who are trying to compete. They're really the ones that hopefully will benefit from this new cost cap structure. They just didn't have the revenue to spend and catch up with these top teams. And to your point on the top three, if you noticed there are two OEMs in an FMCG consumer business, they really view this in a holistic way with their core businesses in terms of brand building and advertising. Uh, Mercedes has come out and said they think there's $1 billion of advertising equivalent value to being a part of Formula One. Ferrari talks about it in their public filings about how Formula One is a key competitive advantage for the brand and a strategic focus for the brand. For Ferrari, I mean, their primary marketing budget is F1. That's how they market the business. If you go to a race, they have their own club. All the Ferrari owners in the local market come to those races and are hosted there. It's a huge part of that brand in the, in the history and the success of it. Mercedes, similarly, and Red Bull, a little bit different, not so much an OEM, but essentially that whole idea of an extreme sport and 200 mile per hour plus cars, uh, pulling multiple Gs, is, it certainly fits that bucket. McLaren is a little bit different. McLaren is essentially a racing team. They've now created an OEM out of that. McLaren started as a racing team, and that was kind of their singular focus. And they and Renault, which obviously is another OEM, certainly see value in terms of the brand. Now, they're both OEMs where the racing team, in McLaren's case, was the primary driver. And in Renault's case, they like Ferrari and like Mercedes see value for the brand and being part of the sport. And they've been able to spend more as a result and kind of not quite as much as the largest teams historically, but enough to be competitive year in and year out. And then you have a collection of smaller teams, which are a mix. They're primarily teams that are not associated with a brand. And not surprisingly, those were the teams that had the most budget constraints and maybe had the hardest time keeping up with performance. But that's really the collection of it. And it's this new Concord agreement was trying to compress the competitiveness between those where you had the biggest teams, which derived value from it to their core business. And as a result, were willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to be successful. If Mercedes is generating $1 billion of advertising equivalent value, spending three, $400 million a year doesn't seem like such a bad payback. If you're Sauber racing and you generate hundred million from your F1 performance fees, plus some sponsorship deals, that's it. That's, that's the only uh, money you had coming in. And so that's what really drove the differentiation in performance historically and what this new Concord agreement really tries to solve. As just a fun sidebar, could you describe the story of Lawrence Stroll and Aston Martin and the gamesmanship that happens at the team level, which I think contributes to why this sport is so intriguing in the first place, that you've got this new Concord Agreement, which places this cap and makes maybe levels the playing field, but you've also got really interesting, successful business people going and trying to compete. It feels a little bit more like chess than maybe buying a US NFL franchise or something like this. Can you tell that story briefly? Because I think it's so interesting. Lawrence bought a team called Racing Point, which was in some financial trouble a couple of years ago. Lawrence is a huge car fan. He loves cars. He loves F1. He loves Ferraris. He loves racing. He bought the sport primarily for that. In addition, his son is a race car driver. We have increasingly seen in the sport folks who have the means and are excited about the sport with children who are racers getting in. So one of the uh, Williams drivers is also the son of someone who's a major sponsor for them. And so that dynamic it's actually lately been in the press with uh, Lewis Hamilton talking about it. 
so that's, I think, what initially got him into the sport and the league. He saw an opportunity to be a part of something. And I think in fairness to Lawrence, he saw this inflection point happening with ownership at Formula One, where it was becoming more sustainable to be a mid-tier team. And he saw the path to being a successful team as some of these changes started to take hold. As a next step, he then went out and uh, bought Aston Martin, controlled Aston Martin, the OEM. Not surprisingly, married those two together, created Aston Martin Racing. And Aston Martin, obviously an important brand in the world of sports cars and brings this new dynamic of competition and racing, frankly, to Ferrari, to Mercedes, rumors of other OEMs who have similar brands now as a result, looking closer at it because of F1's reach, because of F1's value. If you're a high-end sports car brand and you're seeing more and more of your peers on this platform, it does kind of beg the question, hey, or do you want to be the one team that's left out? Can you talk a bit more about why BMW dropped out? So we've already talked about how valuable this is, how incredibly valuable this can be to a, an OEM like a Ferrari or a Mercedes. BMW pops immediately to mind. What's the story there? Like you would think for sure this company would want to have one of these 10 teams or maybe 11 teams if, if they were to be added. Why did they drop out? And what are sort of the things that matter in that sort of decision for an OEM? BMW dropped out, and this was several years ago, because the financial sustainability of the sport was just becoming challenging unless you had enormous success. We talked about how prior to the current budget caps coming into play, the top teams were spending three to $500 million a year to be a part of this sport. And if you're super successful, that can be a decent payback. Mercedes would tell you their 400 million plus that they've spent on this sport for the last five years has been enormously successful because it's helped establish their AMG brand as a true sports car business. And they're selling cars that are just derivatives of their F1 cars now because of it. Ferrari would tell you, we sell the pinnacle of the sports car. We have to be successful and be a part of the pinnacle of sports racing. And so that's why they're a part of it. It's a little bit of a challenge if you step in as a new OEM into the sport and you're having to spend that kind of money for years to come up a learning curve to become competitive. The reality with especially public companies is after a number of years of lack of success and that kind of spending, and maybe there's a change at the board and at the management teams, which is, I think, what happened with BMW, someone came in and said, gosh, that's a place where I can cut some costs. And so they did. That's why this Concord agreement, this budget cap is so, so important. And you've seen this with Porsche which has been rumored in the press to be interested in joining the league going forward, their first thing was, you got to get the Concord signed. You got to figure out the budget caps. And then their second thing, which we can get into, is they want stability on the engine. And the reason is, if you're an OEM, you pretty much want to use your own engine. Otherwise, what are you really doing? If you're using your own engine, you have to have an engine that's competitive or else it's not a positive. It's a negative marketing move. And it takes years and years to catch up on engine technology. You know, Renault, Ferrari, and Mercedes have been building these engines now for over a decade. They have refined them in extreme ways. For a new player to walk in based on current engine technology with no spending caps around developing that engine technology, that's a scary proposition. And so there's been this real focus on the OEM partners to say, A, you got to make it more sustainable for us to be able to walk in from a pure just team standpoint of what we have to spend. And then B, the real value here is when we can use our own technology, our own engines in particular, and you got to have a sustainable makeup for us there so that if we come and join the sport, we're not guaranteed five years of a losing season just to try to catch up and come up the learning curve. 
an observation from the cheap seats is the incredible effectiveness of AMG as a brand for Mercedes, where BMW had the M class for so long. And now if anything, AMG like feels more powerful. I don't know what other word to use, but that has to be because of the F1 experience. So you have to think there's the opportunity to do that for other OEMs. I agree completely. How about Porsche? That's the only one we haven't talked about. It seems like the obvious odd man out here. Have they had a team ever? I don't believe so. And they have been rumored. It's been a pretty public courting, <laughs> frankly, between the league and the team. I think it's pretty well reported. They essentially hired people to try and create a team. Volkswagen brought in some folks, including Stefano Domenicali, <laughs> to try to help them figure out Formula One. The gentleman who is now the team principal over at McLaren came from Porsche Racing. So they had started to build up the mass. And I think they're very interested in joining the sport. As you said, there's real benefits to it. And they were just scared off by the budget implications of running a team, plus this idea that the engines could be a real differentiator for them. And and one where what they don't want to do is have Porsche join a league, spend $400 million a year, knowing that either they have to use a Mercedes engine or a Ferrari engine, which doesn't do a whole lot for your Porsche brand, or say, I'm going to use the Porsche engine, but hey, I'm going to effectively have four losing seasons, three losing seasons, because I just got to come up the learning curve of running an engine that is operating at such limits, but still has to be reliable enough to run a hundred races. And there are limits on how many engines you can use over a season and over a race. So you can't just say, well, even if I have an unreliable engine, no problem, I'll just keep putting new engines in. It's a daunting challenge. So I think the new Concord agreement goes a long way on the financial side. There's talk of having a new engine Concord agreement effectively in 2025. And I think when that starts to come into focus, you will start to see some more noise. It is a well-known and reported fact that Porsche VW Group are involved in the negotiations already on some of those things. I hope in 2025, we hear the name Elon for some reason or another involved in F1. (laughs) Also plausible. You described the revenue buckets. I'd love to describe the cost buckets as well. So you've already talked about part of this is paying out to the teams. So there's an agreement through the Concord agreement with how revenue sharing works. The league generates revenue. It shares it with its teams. What other cost centers are there? You've mentioned to me before, there's a very asset light business. It doesn't own the tracks, doesn't own teams, really is like a central body. And, and that's basically it. Talk through the cost centers of the business today. Well, the largest cost center by far is the team share (laughs) that's paid out to the team. So you can think about that historically as being around 65%, a little bit higher recently of pre-team share EBITDA, they call it, that is split out to the teams. And that's by far the largest cost center. If you think about cost of goods sold, it's really not very high, essentially, right? It, this is essentially, he said, a licensing or royalty business where the content is produced and resold, and it's not very expensive to create the content if you're at the league level. Beyond the team share, staying at the league level here, the primary costs are sales for sponsorship and advertising and broadcast. They do have a technical team in place to help with creating regulations. And so those are kind of the big three buckets. But this is a very high gross margin business. This is a, if you want to think of the gross margin as after the team share, since the teams absorb some of the costs through that pre-team share agreement, it's just a very high gross margin, very high cash generating business. This is a sport at the league level that's able to, as we saw with COVID, very quickly adjust its cost base because it's very fungible. 
Maybe you could say a little bit about the history of the sport. It has a very unusual, very carefully controlled history in Bernie, the, the person that started the league, and I think really held it personally through most of its history. This makes for a unique business history, but also it's key for investors to understand, I think, because there's been so much transformation happening. Can you tell the history of the sport and how it got started and how it grew? Sure. So, I mean, Formula One actually started as a weekend get together for racing enthusiasts who would build these cars and want to race them together. And Bernie was a visionary. He basically saw the commercial opportunity that started to materialize in front of his eyes. He was part of that group. And he tried to get the participants, effectively the team owners, to go to the FIA and get the commercial rights, the broadcast rights for those, for the races they were putting on. They were increasingly getting more fans. It was getting kind of more exciting. His fellow team owners rejected the idea. So he just went and did it himself. 50 years later, here we are with the pinnacle of motorsport he helped create. He was an eccentric leader. The business used to be run out of his personal house in London. It was just one floor was F1. The rest was where he lived. He really pushed a lot of the costs to develop the sport onto the teams in particular, which really led to that dynamic of kind of a zero-sum game and that competition and mistrust maybe between some of the constituents in the sport. And it was because it was run on a little bit of a shoestring. I think there was one salesperson for sponsorship and advertising beyond Bernie because nobody could approve anything in the sport other than Bernie. That's a very effective way on a low cost basis to maximize cash flow, but maybe not the most effective way to monetize an asset over time. And I think what Liberty did is they started to come in and look at the sport was say, there's real opportunity here. One at the macro level or at the ecosystem level, if you will, to uh, improve the value of the sport by having this new Concord agreement they've now gotten through, fix some of those zero-sum game issues and have everyone rowing in the same direction to try to optimize the value of it. And then secondly, on a micro level, you could look at some of the higher value sponsorship agreements and say, gosh, that looks like a pretty well monetized sport. But when you went one or two or three layers deeper, you started to realize that even though at a contract level, things may have been optimized pretty well because of the shoestring approach to the sales force and to the slicing and the dicing and, and maybe the not quite professionalized level of the league itself, there was a lot of opportunity to improve the monetization. And this idea of tremendous potential for value unlock is really unique. Does this make you think of any other business or investing scenario that you've encountered before? Is there an analog here that you think is interesting for people trying to kind of pull lessons away from this situation? I'm not going to go too far afield from Formula One away, but just think about Ferrari when it came out of Fiat. It was an interesting, it was kind of the halo brand, the halo business. It had really focused its business on a single product category, these very high-end supercars. As it started to emerge outside of Fiat and look at its own way, you started to see their ability to monetize in so many different ways around this core brand they had going up market side market, you know, SUVs now coming out. Porsche did that in an iteration before that, where they came out, they essentially were a one car business. And as they emerged, they became a multi-car, multi-brand, you know, they have clothing lines. And so if you look at these businesses that grew out with these very singular products, and F1 essentially had that too with Western Europe. It was a handful of races out of Western Europe, which became this global spectacle and became now professionalized. That dual professionalization plus global expansion 
really is what drove that. And I can think of a couple scenarios in the car world where you started to see exactly that same dynamic start to unfold. What has this taught you about the development of, I don't know what to call it, intellectual property or content property that F1 has done well? Like obviously they're doing something exceptionally well to have reached this kind of global fan base. To what do you attribute that? And is that something that other content producers could think about applying to their business? I think what Bernie was extremely successful in doing was creating a global spectacle, not just a race car series, not just a motorsport, the glamour, the luxury that he brought to the brand. People wanted to be a part of it. Again, if you want to think of ancillaries, Aramez has done that with their business, obviously with a very different product, but it's really comes down to brand, to developing a brand and managing a brand well. And Bernie just did a wonderful job of creating this brand that people wanted to be a part of, be their fans who want to be at these races, be they celebrities who see the glamour of a Monaco race and want to be part of that. And it's not just Monaco, it's all the races. You can see the glitz, the glamour that comes with it. So to me, it really comes down to brand management, how you manage a global brand in a, to ensure that there's value for multiple participants. This just happens to be a sporting business, but it's at the end of the day, it's a brand and it's that value of the ecosystem. I keep talking about the value of that brand ecosystem that drives the ability to monetize. And they've done it in a way that few sports have been able to do to take and build a global brand that's really high-end, really special, and yet engaging with hundreds of millions of unique fans and over a billion hours of engagement with those fans. You talked about the complexity of the sport offering levels of participation that are very deep. So you might watch the Netflix series and then end up studying terabytes of data or something. Like The ability for a fan to engage has levels kind of unlike any sport. There's still kind of one directional stuff coming from the league or the sport to the fan. Stefano has talked a bit about maybe even taking that a step further and making it two-way. So making it interactive, thinking about things like gaming, going OTT, having direct paid relationships with fans. This seems really fascinating. If you've got this rich, huge fan base, richer, or huge fan base, there's now new ways to engage them more directly rather than through a track intermediary or promoter, a TV partner or whatever. Talk about that aspect of this where now the relationship with the fan becomes more direct more open, more honest in sort of the same way. Why is that exciting and what might happen there? Yeah. So we've talked about these three revenue drivers and why each of them may improve at a micro level. But if you come back to this core idea that an ownership of Formula One is ownership of this ecosystem, it gets really exciting to say, gosh, aren't there other ways to maybe grow the value and then monetize those? I think what you said is exactly right. The key to that healthy ecosystem is engaged fans. Now that means competitive sport and all those things that Concord does. But at the end of the day, it comes to do fans want to be a part of this? Do they want to follow the sport? How engaged are they going to be in it? The step one for Liberty in that was this TV F F1 TV Pro, which essentially is a super fan OTT product, which says, hey, you know, you can pick which exact camera angle you want to watch and which individual car you want to watch when you're going around the race. That's been a product that they're really focused on, on trying to grow in partnership with some of their broadcast partners in various countries. It takes time to roll these things out because you have these historical multi-year broadcast contracts, which some of them had OTT rights, some of them didn't. But that's kind of step one. Step two was absolutely removing the social media restrictions from individual participants in the sport. F1 didn't feel like something that was attainable. How are you supposed to have a relationship with a sport when the heroes 
you can't even have a relationship with them. You know, when you have when you're following Lewis Hamilton or Lando Norris, who's this young uh, kind of up and coming star in the sport, you're a young fan who says, "Hey, I'm now following them on Instagram," and you know they're hosting social media chats with their fans. That connection just goes to another level. And in in the prior days, you got fined if you put a post out as a driver when you were in an F1 facility, whether it be a racetrack or whatever. And so that was step two. And step three has been interesting, which is esport. And I find this fascinating. Video game in general is competition for entertainment hours and sports competes for that as well. Two is obviously you have to think about your younger fan base on average video game players are younger. And so how do you attract those younger fans into the ecosystem? And they initially started that out with this kind of esport league. The teams come in and have their own esport drivers and they would compete and the winners would maybe get a chance to go into the F1 team and do some simulator work and things like that. But if you start thinking about what that vision could look like going forward, imagine a scenario where you have the F1 video game and you get to log on the day the race is going on and you have a virtual car that's getting fed the actual race data and you are racing in that race with your little car. And people have talked about that vision going forward as a way of increasing engagement. Just think about the opportunity there for the league in terms of not just selling a video game, but having a season where someone becomes part of a season, all of a sudden you have this kind of interesting subscription business that the video game companies are all pushing, which the league is the core IP. So they're going to get it. So these, all these different ways of improving that engagement starts to open up a breadth of opportunities for different ways to grow that business. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it just keeps coming back to this idea that have a healthy, viable, growing in value ecosystem. And from that, you will have all the opportunities to grow that, which is why I think of it as a you know royalty or a licensing on that value. One of the things we like to do at the end of these conversations is think about lessons that a business might teach us both for business builders, entrepreneurs, and also for investors. So maybe we'll start with business builders. For those listening out there that are entrepreneurs themselves, what are the biggest lessons you think the F1 story in business can teach them? The importance of culture in a business. And, you know, I know everyone talks about this, but just think about the suboptimal outcomes that came to the business when it was this adversarial ecosystem where it was feeling like a zero sum game. And when everybody in the system felt like their interests were aligned with the other constituents' interests, you start to see things really improve. There are these sprint races that people have talked about. I don't know if you follow this, but teams just approved the idea of trying sprint races for qualifying, essentially having a mini race to determine the starting positions as opposed to typical qualifying. There were teams where that was not the optimal outcome for them. That's an expensive way of basically qualifying. It's not optimal. And yet everybody voted for it because they understood that the ecosystem value increases. So that idea of really getting culture in place where all your constituents, be it your customers, your fans in this case, be it your suppliers, the teams, your broadcast partners, everyone feels like they understand the end goal you are trying to reach and they are incented to try to get there as well with you. When you have everyone rowing in the same direction, the value you can create is pretty special. What about the same question for investors specifically? So what about your experience with this company, I'll call it now? do you think is most portable as lessons or lesson for investors? Change takes time and is hard. 
I think a lot of people who, when F1 first came to the market, followed the story and the business started to say to themselves, oh, look at the end goal that they want to reach. They're going to professionalize the sport. They're going to look at all the white space in advertising, look at the opportunities to improve monetization in X or Y or Z category. And then you could just see everyone thought you were going to get there in 12 or 24 months. It takes time to affect change, especially when it's around culture and people, but even just beyond that business. And I think people have to understand when there's a big change afoot, you just have to be patient as an investor and understand that the end goal, what's most important is reaching that end goal, reaching that equilibrium where you think that business is now where it needs to be, as opposed to saying, I need to get there quickly. Move fast and break things can work in certain instances, but in other instances, it's actually not what you want to do. And, And F1 for me was a real lesson in that patience I will admit, when I first started to look at the business, I thought things were going to happen a little faster than they were. And I understood as I kind of followed the business and got a little bit better understanding of the various constituents that it was going to take time. And that's actually what we wanted as investors. Last question. If people are fascinated by this story and want to learn more, where would you send them? Watch Drive to Survive. It's actually a wonderful crash course in not only is it just a a fun series to watch, but it's a nice crash course in the business. You see some of the key teams, the teams and the drivers are the IP. Talk about how F1 is really special, but that's really the core value in the ecosystem in some ways. I don't think F1 can ever be replicated because it's got this special value and ecosystem within it. But if you want to get introduced to some of the key players in the ecosystem, that's a really fun series to watch and to learn. So that's step one, I would say. And step two is, this is going to be way less fun than the first one, but print out the new Concord commercial agreement and read them. It's a little bit dry reading, but at the same time, you're going to get a real feel for not only what the new rules are, but you're going to focus on what people were emphasizing, what changes were implemented, and you'll start to get a feel for what the pinch points were before and what these new rules are really trying to fix. So those are kind of the two key starting points for me of just getting introduced to the league beyond the obvious, read the the annuals and all that. I'm so appreciative of your time and you breaking down F1 with us. You've taught me most of what I know about this as a business and as a story, and it's been totally fascinating to explore it. So thank you for your time today and for all the insight. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Getting to dive inside the F1 machine was incredible. I have a new appreciation for the brand and I'm fascinated to see what innovative audience tools they come out with next. I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of Formula One. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 